when you fail or when you fall or when you trip, there's a lesson to be learned if you want to learn the lesson. To me, there is no failure because I always win because I learn. I learn now what not to do the next time. So I don't fail. I actually win. So that I, I learn more from my quote unquote failures than I do from my successes. That's Reggie Showers, and this is the Amputee Strong Podcast. Hello, my friends. This is your host, Erez Avramov, and today we have a beautiful episode with Reggie Showers. Reggie Showers' story is incredible, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. It's filled with insights and experience. Uh, Reggie has taken his journey to become a two-time world champion motorcycle drag racer. He's a pilot, a snowboarder, an instructor, a mentor, an amputee advocate, a father, a great spirit for all of us to learn from. So I'm sure you'll enjoy this episode. And here is Reggie. I'm a product of the 1960s. Um, I was born in 1964. I'm the youngest of six kids to a homemaker mother, and a small business owner, owner father. Uh, grew up in West Philadelphia, born and raised in the United States of America, and uh, had two brothers that served in Vietnam that were very influential on a lot of uh, on my young childhood and helped me set some, uh, some really lofty goals for myself, which would materialize later and be very, very instrumental for me in my journey. Um, I was a very, very adventurous kid. Uh, we didn't have uh, the internet and Xbox and PlayStation and all like uh, a lot of kids have today, but we had outside and all that outside had to offer. And there was a lot of uh, amazing life experiences that I learned uh, growing up in, a, in an inner city neighborhood. Um, we were We were poor, but we didn't know we were poor. We had everything that we needed, like a roof over our head and food on the table. You know, we had a car and and I went to school. I had friends, played uh, just like uh, any other kid growing up in an inner city neighborhood. It was one of the things that I did uh, love to do. And that was because of one of my brothers was I loved uh, motorcycles. Uh, My brother, uh, Herman, he had a, a Yamaha uh, like a three Yamaha 360 or something. And, and when I was a little boy, I would climb on top of it and my feet would barely reach the uh, foot pegs and I would turn the switches and dials and all that stuff. And just to just fantasize about riding that motorcycle. And that was where my initial love of uh, motorcycles um, became uh, a reality. And uh, my dad made me a deal as I grew, as I got older, he said, son, listen, if, um, if you keep your grades up in school, said, I'll, uh, I'll get you a small motorcycle, a mini bike, as they were called back in the day. And um, as you can imagine, uh, my grades went through the roof once he put that carrot out in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, he got me a little motorcycle and mini bike. And, and man, I used to just love riding my mini bike after school. You know, I made sure all my chores were done and, and kept my grades up and finished my homework. And, and got on my mini bike and off I would go off on another adventure. So that was a, a strong motivator from you for oh, you from absolutely. a young age. Absolutely. So you you, know, you saw so, the power of it. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I sure did. My dad was a smart man. He, uh, God rest his soul. He, he, uh, he had a sixth grade education, but he was a, a professor. I mean, he was a, uh, it, when it comes to, uh, uh, common sense and man had so much common sense and, uh, you know, he grew up in another era where you had to come out of school and go to work at an early age. So, but, uh, he instilled in me those life lessons that I, that I use to this day. And I, and I thank him very, very much for everything. Uh, one particular day, you know, as, uh, I, I went off on an adventure on my motorcycle, as I, I did all the other days, um, you know, was nothing different from any other day. Um, it was uh, May 30th, 1978, Memorial Day, matter of fact. And uh, my, my family was having a, a cookout, but it was still early on. None of the guests had arrived and, you know, food wasn't quite ready and I figured I'd go off on my 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 mini bike on another adventure and uh, some friends of mine and uh, we had set up this this little racetrack that we could ride our mini bikes on and this racetrack was uh, adjacent to a train yard and I decided to uh, and, you know, I, was, I was hanging out with my friends and all I got bored uh, with racing so I parked my mini bike and I decided to go down and play on the train tracks this is something that we as kids did all the time. I and mean, we, you know, the train tracks were a, a playground of sorts for, for us. Uh, we used to use the train tracks to cut across to, as a shortcut, I should say, to cut across to a, a, a neighboring, a neighboring neighborhood. And uh, a lot of the trains would come through, the conductors would wave at us. And, you know, we, we felt very welcomed and very safe in a very dangerous place. We did not know the danger that lurked inside of these train tracks. Um, and it was just a, a normal place for us kids to play in. And there was a set of boxcars that were parked out on these train tracks. And routinely, uh, the trains would disconnect and leave, you know, a number of boxcars there. And us kids would play inside of them, under them, on top of them. And and uh, I decided to climb to the top of this one particularly tall set of boxcars. And when I did, I didn't realize that I had gotten really, really close to an overhead electrical power wire. And in that wire was 13,000 volts of electricity. Now, back then, we used to see birds sit on these wires all day long. But the thing was, when the birds... Uh, flew to the wire they weren't grounded so that electricity didn't affect them well me I was standing on a metal box car you know that was grounded and when I got too close to that overhead power wire that electricity arced onto my body and um, all that energy 13,000 volts of electricity hit me and knocked me right out um, I didn't feel uh, an ounce of pain thank god and, um, but I, I don't know how, how long I was knocked out for. Fortunately, my friends saw what happened and they ran to get help as I lay there unconscious on top of this boxcar. I would eventually regain consciousness and I drifted in and out of consciousness for the next, what seemed like an hour. And um, I kind of, I looked up, uh, my body was in shock. I was very numb. I couldn't talk, I couldn't move. And there was this odor 
in the air that I had never smelled before. And that odor was burnt flesh. Um, my skin had on my, both of my arms looked like I had a really bad sunburn and, you know, like the skin was peeling and my, my shirt, I had a short sleeve shirt on that was kind of tattered and burned in certain spots. And I looked up and I saw that wire and I kind of put two and two together. I knew something was wrong. And I said, Oh man, I must've been electrocuted. So you knew, Um, I knew it's it's just, it, it was just, at 14 years old, you know, I, I knew that it's, this had to be what, what happened. And um, so fire and rescue came and got me. They couldn't do anything until they shut down the power on that wire. Um, so they, they climbed their ladders and got me down off the boxcar and took me to a, uh, a local hospital. And they assessed my injuries and they said, he's in really bad shape. We're going to have to airlift him to a major trauma center. So they did. Got my first ride in a helicopter with my father. And, uh, you know, friends that ran and notified my, my family prior to that. And my family was just devastated. So they all came to the hospital and all. So my dad flew in a helicopter with me to the major trauma center. And they assessed my injuries. And they de- determined that I had 30, third degree burns over 35% of my body. And the most traumatic injury was to both of my feet. Uh, as the electricity exited my body, um, it just left the muscles and tendons and flesh was just too burned and destroyed. Uh, there was nothing they could do but amputate both legs below the knees. And I remember the doctor um, telling me, he called me by my full name, which is Reginald. He says, Reginald, he says, I'm going to have to uh, amputate both of your legs. And, you know, I was sedated and my body was still in shock. And and I looked over at my parents and I said, oh, well, there goes my basketball career. So every kid in my neighborhood all wanted to be basketball players. We wanted to be NBA basketball stars like Julius Dr. J. Irving from uh, the the 76ers, who were our favorite teams at the time. But I, I took it in stride. I can't explain why, but I took it in stride. It was okay. For some reason, there was this this calm that came over my body, and 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 it wasn't the the drugs that they were giving me. It was just, you know, it, it, it's kind of like it was part of my life purpose. It, it, I didn't know at the time, but it was part of what was supposed to happen. It was fate. Is exactly what it was, and I was experiencing that at at that very young age. I t- I totally understood it. And I, I was totally okay with it because what I was, knew. So, sorry. So you're saying you, you felt, it almost sounds like there was an acceptance with everything that has happened. Despite, I totally, right. totally, yeah. I totally accepted it. Uh, I was ready for the journey. I knew that there was nothing that I could do about it. Um, you would think that these would be the, the, the understandings of someone who would be much more mature. That's right. And, How do you explain it? I, I, I can't, you know, I really can't. It's my faith um, that kept me calm. I didn't feel sorry for myself at any point during this process, this journey. I didn't feel not an ounce of pity for myself. Um, 
I felt a whole lot of pain <laughs> through the uh, through the healing and you know going through the whole process and which I'll talk about. But uh, pity, there was no pity whatsoever. I was like, okay, let's do this. I'm ready. Can you share a little bit about that side of faith? That uh, did, uh, is it something that you grew up in, like your surrounding, your family, culture? Can you explain a little bit about the part that has played so um, enormous um, share of you, this entire recovery process for you? What was it? I'm very fortunate to... Um I've grown up in a family of, of faith. I'm um, Baptist. And across the street from my house was my father's grocery store, which was on a corner. And on the other corner was my church. And I grew up in that church, going to Sunday school every Sunday, learning uh, life lessons from the deacons. Uh, learning the word of God and learning about hope, you know, not knowing what's going to happen, but trusting that everything will happen for, for my good, knowing that I'm okay. I will be okay. No matter how hard the journey is, no matter uh, how bleak the outlook looks is just having this, this enormous trust that I somehow am going to be okay in life. Uh, and I learned that at a very early age. And I'm so very fortunate that I did. And that's why I, I look back on that, this whole process. And I say, these things were put in motion early on for my benefit later on. I didn't know at the time why I had to go through certain life lessons but they were preparing me to be able to uh, deal with some of the struggles that I've dealt with uh, some of the process later on in life. Um, so I'm very fortunate that I had faith and I was taught um, the ways of the Bible and at an early age, because yeah. that got me through a very, very dark time. Um, after this traumatic experience. Yeah. So you, I, you, I, I thank God every day, all day. Yes. And you know, this is so powerful because especially, and we are, we are the product of that uh, when you go through a traumatic event. And then when you start to share with the community and you start to ch touch other people's lives and you see what we all go through on this crazy life journey, it's those connections with faith, be that through a religious practice or through any other means that you choose to. But I found this always to be the case where when you have something bigger than yourself that you don't necessarily need to define, but you can understand that there is a greater plan uh, beyond what you are able to see at that particular moment. Because when the trauma happens, right? I mean, this is, you know, I, I always use the uh, description of the dark night of the soul. It's like everything is stripped away from you and now you have to not just recover and survive of what has happened. Now you need to rebuild your life and, and rebuild it to something different. And one of the messages that, you know, you uh, always promote and, and I use 
uh, it myself in, in my life and, and when I help others is there is a reason for certain things that happen in our lives. But when it happens, it's not necessarily in front of us. It's something that you discover after the fact. And it sounds like for you, from being so young, yet that knowledge was so ingrained in you that when this 13,000 volts, which is unfathomable that you've even survived that, um, went through your body, you knew right there and then. Absolutely. Um, in all honesty, uh, I couldn't articulate the fact that it was something greater than myself, that I didn't know this was part of my purpose at that time. Uh, it was just a part of my journey. Um, but I didn't know that I didn't know until I became more mature. I didn't know until I learned my purpose later on in life that, uh, this, that, that, that incident was uh, part of this greater than myself process. Um, so, if that makes any sense. Um, it does. It does. And I think this is the maturity of growing exactly. as, as exactly. someone who went through a, a, a serious trauma, there's a process where we have to digest what has happened and then right. grow with it. So right. maybe, maybe we can uh, dive back in because we have so much to talk about. I just <laughs> love this conversation with you. But, <laughs> but for our listeners, I would like to keep uh, some kind of uh, structure to it. So, okay. so you're there at the hospital, the doctors uh, are around you and he comes to you and he says, listen, Reggie, we have to amputate. Take us. Yeah. So they, uh, you know, he told me he was going to amputate both my legs and, uh, and they did, they did the, the amputation. And I spent the next two weeks in the uh, intensive care unit where um, there was some other people that had suffered horrific burns uh, that were sharing this, this huge unit uh, with me. And I can tell you, man, I, I thank God every day uh, to, to just give me life because as a 14 year old kid, I, I've seen some things, I've seen some horrific things from other people that were uh, injured as well as myself. And it was a, uh, it was a very traumatic experience to see other people burn the way that they were. Um, and, and to have to uh, go to the scrub room and have, you know, to lay there naked on a, a gurney, a stainless steel gurney with all this sterile plastic. Um, and they would lower me into a tub of water and, and scrub my 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 raw skin to remove all the dead debride skin or de, it's called debridement to debride the skin and uh and then dress my uh, my wounds and extremely painful oh my gosh you've never felt pain until you experience a third degree burn is super painful um and it's just just morphine and and dilaudid all these opiates that they would give you every 4 hours to help you deal with the pain. Um, it was just super traumatic. Um, but I was okay. It, it was, like I said, it was, um, I knew that it was part of the, the process. It was, I was going to be okay. What kept so you they, going when you I'm were, sorry? what kept you going when you were in that pain and this terrible situation where you see yourself in it, but then you also see all these other people uh, struggling and fighting for their life around you. What, 
What was what, that? What helped me, you know, besides my, my, um, my faith was, um, was my family, my support, um, my community, my school. I was in the eighth grade and all of my friends, they said that the, uh, the, the call center, uh, the switchboard was overloaded uh, with calls with all my friends from school that were calling to try to talk to me and find out if I was okay. And they had to actually stop taking calls for my room. And, um, but just the fact that my family would come every single day to, uh, to come and visit my mother and father. They, and they, and the most important thing was that they told me that I was going to be okay. They, they gave me, they confirmed, they gave me the confidence in knowing that I was going to be okay. They had no clue that I was going to be okay, but they told me that I was going to be okay. And that was what I needed to hear. Uh, and they never, ever let me see them cry. They always came with such positivity and with, and with such strength. And that was what I needed to help get me through. Um, my mother and father told me that after, especially my dad, my dad was the, you know, the rock of the family, obviously. But he told me that after he would leave the hospital, he would just cry and cry and cry on the drive home. He would cry at home. And uh, just to see, you know, his son laying in the hospital bed, all bandaged up and, you know, missing his legs. And But when they saw me, you know, it was always smiles and positivity and, you know, you're going to be okay, Reggie. And, you know, when you get out of here, you know, you're going to go on with life and there's nothing that you can't do. And And I needed to hear that. I really did. And that, that helped me get through um, that stressful period. So um, I stayed there for a month in the burn center. And um, I healed up quickly. Kids are very resilient. We, we heal pretty fast. And uh, then I went to our rehabilitation center in Philadelphia, where they were going to teach me how to, to walk again. And so started my, my journey of uh, regaining my mobility with prosthetic legs. And the prosthetic legs of 1978 compared to the prosthetic legs of 2019 is uh, those legs were archaic by comparison to uh, what we have today. I, I, I routinely tell new amputees, you know, God forbid you have to become an amputee. Well, I tell I routinely tell people, God forbid you have to become an amputee. It's really not a bad time to become an amputee in this day and age because of the advancements in prosthetic technology, and more importantly, it's the support system. We have your back, and we know the importance of support and helping to guide new amputees through the process, and that's something that was not stressed back in the 70s um, was the support. So it was a very, very uh, dark time for me during the rehabilitation, uh, psychologically and emotionally, but that wouldn't I wouldn't realize that until after the process of trying to learn to walk using these, what seemed like 50 pound each legs that uh, were not dynamic. You know, there was no spring, there was no bounce. Uh, they did not like to stay on very well. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was, they were very clunky. Um, it, it, and they didn't even look, they didn't look cool. You know, I could have dealt with all the discomfort and lack of, uh, you know, dynamic energy, um, if they looked cool, but they looked really geriatric and, 
and you know I, I looked like uh, I I wasn't going to be able to do things. You know, he just kind of had that look, like, oh yeah, he's he's messed up for life, and um, which really affected me uh, psychologically because uh, I wanted to get back to a normal life and uh, do the things that I love to do prior to my amputation, but I was I was restricted um, by the prosthetic leg technology of the times um, but that that strengthened my resolve knowing that uh, it was going to be an uphill battle knowing that I was going to have to work super hard to uh, walk in these antiquated well they weren't antiquated they were cutting edge at the time but um, knowing that I was going to have to work super hard work to walk in these prosthetic legs was going to build up so much strength and so much confidence that I never knew that I even had inside of me. So um, Reggie, so yes. you've, t- you've touched on two points and I just want to expand on them a little bit. You know, the first one, of course, is, and we talk about it all the time. This is part of the amputee journey. This is part of how we positions, position ourselves to succeed on this and it's mindset, Right. Yep. And when you share your journey, and even from the early stages, when you were 14, not with a lot of life experience, but with a lot of faith and support from your family, you already had in you a certain mindset that was up for the challenge. Can you share a little bit about where it came from? Is it something that was always there, even prior to your injury? Is it something that you knew you needed to develop? So you said to yourself, you know what, I do need to get stronger here and you work on it. Because that dark period that we all are exposed to and have to go through uh, initially after the trauma, but you know, most of us go in and out of it almost on a regular basis just because life is life. So what was it for you that allowed you to maintain that mindset and actually harness that strength to help you recover? In, in all honesty, uh, I think that it had to do with the support and the coaching, the guidance that I got from my father. Um, mm. I was a, growing up as a young kid, I was chubby. Uh, I was husky. They used to call the word back then was <laughs> it's a, it's a, politically correct way of saying it, I was fat. <laughs> so, I was a little fat, chunky kid, and um, I wasn't very good at sports. Um, and girls didn't like me at you know, an early age, which was fine, which made me not waste a lot of time chasing girls, but I, I worked on um, other areas of my life. I focused on other things, uh, you know, intellectually, um, and, uh, mechanically, but my dad, he just continued to instill in me this, this confidence, this son, you can do whatever you want to do and you're going to be successful at it. And, you know, even when you fail, there is a, there is a lesson in your failure. You, you get an educational what not to do the next time. So he instilled that in me at a young age. And, uh, then I went through puberty at 12 and I burned off all this fat and I got super, uh, super athletic. And I started to use some of the principles and the, and the coaching that he taught me at a young age, which helped me to 
develop this confidence that I'm going to be okay. Um, that whatever struggles that I have, I'm going to go through them and I'm going to face them and do just that, go through them. I'm not going to stay there in the dark period. I'm going to go through, learn what I can from it, and then emerge on the other side uh, in the light. So that was really, really what helped me was the, the, the support. Uh, that's why I'm such a proponent of support uh, when we as human beings do face these, these traumatic uh, experiences. It's always super important to, to latch on, to uh, talk with someone who has walked that path before you and that can walk you through uh, the journey and, uh, and emerge on the other side. So that's what would work for me. Right. And I want to touch on that point as well, because today the work that you do is advocacy for amputees. It's, uh, you know, when I first met you, I actually heard of you uh, a long time ago and there was never an opportunity to meet. We were supposed to meet last uh, year for an event and I couldn't make it. Uh, I had to recover from a, a little heart attack. And this year we actually had the chance to meet face to face and the one thing that always, um, it doesn't amaze me as much as it just reinforces this power that when we harness the challenge of what we are faced with and we direct it into helping others and supporting others and you took upon yourself to become a mentor to become a, an advocate for amputees. And this is what you do today as a full-time job. And I just want to share with our audience here that if, even if you don't have uh, someone to support you along the journey, like you had your father, I had my family members on my side that provided this kind of support and positive approach to life and, and really keep you together when you feel like your world is collapsing. Um, there are people out there like yourself, like myself and others who have chosen to coach and mentor and share those particular steps and um, kind of tools to work with this difficult situation we're handling. So I just want to give a shout out here to the audience and the listeners here that in the show notes, there will be all the information on how to contact Reggie on, on different articles and different um, uh, information related to what you do and what you offer. And I think I can do this, uh, and, and you tell me if it's okay, to just uh, send an open invitation. If somebody that's listening now does Absolutely. need that extra support, then Absolutely. You know, the door is always open. There will be uh, Reggie's contact information there. And... Um, it's just uh, here to help, right? The, the, the support is, is a two-way street. You know, there's not only as does the, the new amputee or the person facing the challenge, not only do they need the support, but I need the support. The, 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 I need the experience of giving back to my community, giving back uh, to someone who needs, to, who needs the help because that's therapeutic in its own right. And mm -hmm. I didn't realize that for a number of years. And, 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 and I guess I was internalizing uh, the power of what I went through. And I can share that uh, in, in, a, in a little bit. 
But until I learned my purpose in life and then started to give back those gifts, that's when I, 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 I think I became free, free of some of the, the, uh, the, the pain and the scars. And uh, I, I went through a dark, I went through some depression um, that I don't think that I even knew I was going through at the time um, because I wasn't as open and free as I am now as an amputee advocate. And now that I share my story, now that I, I walk around wearing shorts, and that's something that I would never do when uh, I was a young adult. I would never wear shorts or show my scars. I kind of internalized that. And I'm, I, I'm jumping forward a little bit in the story, but I think it needs to be said at this time to complement the support or the offer of support. But it's, it's therapeutic for the supportee and the supporter. <laughs> Uh, so it's really important to uh, be able to give back and share your story. And that's something that I, I tell people all the time is you have a story. Your life story is important to people, to someone somewhere can benefit from your journey. So share your journey, no matter how uh, insignificant you may think it is. It's so very powerful and supportive for somebody to hear it and it can help them with their journey. Yeah, because this is the part where, you know, we're, I think initially we try to make sense of it all. We try to find meaning in it. True. And once we process whatever we need to process for ourselves, because this is a, a situation that basically pushes us to grow as people. Yes. It, it expands our horizon of what life is. I think priorities in life receive a different um, perspective. And when you digest all of this and when you work, because this is deep work, personal deep yes. work that we have yes. to go through. This is just yes. a journey. Nobody can do it yes. for us. Yes. It's something that we do. And you know, this is one of the main reasons why I created the Amputee Strong program that does provide that kind of support and can lead people through their own journeys of discoveries. Because it's not something that is formulaic. It's not, uh, oh, you do one, two, three, and you get to four. It's more about finding the, your own flavor of what the journey represents for you. And the final stage of the Amputee Strong program is paid forward because just like yourself, absolutely, this absolutely. is what we're here to do. We're here to do our own work and then share it with others because there are so absolutely. many that need to hear that, need the support. And at the end, they will learn and walk this tremendous I, I truly believe that we are very privileged to walk this path yes. with all the devastation and pain and depression and horrible situations we have to deal with. I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy, but there's another side to it. And I do believe that those who receive these lessons actually have everything they need to cope with it. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I yeah. agree with you hundred percent. Mm -hmm. And Reggie, let's go back to your, um, you know, early stages of recovery. You touched upon body image, you know, the social perception of people, of how they look at you. This is something that we all deal with initially. Can you share your experience with it then and where you are with it today? Absolutely. So after I'd learned how to walk using uh, prosthetic legs and assimilated back into my community, um, went back to, to junior high school. I'm sorry, uh, entered the first year of high school. And, um, you know, uh, then you got the social issues of being a teenager and, and going to school and having nice clothes or 
you know, looking a certain way and, 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 you know, you want to fit in, you want to be, everybody wants to be like everybody else. So you're accepted. And I was very different because I walked differently. Um, you know, I, I, I had different needs than a lot of the other kids. I couldn't do a lot of the things, uh, physically, uh, like a lot of my classmates could, uh, more specifically on, a, on the lines of uh, playing sports, uh, I couldn't participate in, in those uh, activities. Um, so those were the days where the scarring started to develop and the, the psychological and emotional scarring started. Um, and and I, I didn't realize the magnitude of what I was going to experience, um, the psychological damage that was going to be done at the time, you know, you just kind of roll with it. It's kind of like, you know, you have a sore and, and you just kind of put a Band-Aid on it and you keep moving. And, you know, the more you aggravate it, the, the, the more it starts to hurt or it's, and, then, and then it scars over and, and then there's this big keloid scar and you just kind of live with it. Um, it may be restrictive, you know, sometimes uh, it may hurt when you try to stretch or whatever, but, you know, you just kind of live with it. And you get used to the pain. And that's something that I started to get used to the pain of, you know, people looking at me the way that I walked, um, me not having, um, me not being able to, to, you know, like walk up steps uh, as quickly as uh, my friends could. And um, so I started to hide the fact that, to the best of my ability, I started to hide the fact that I was an amputee uh, from people who didn't know me. Uh, if I met somebody new, you know, in a store or at a, at a little, you know, teen party or something, uh, I would try my best uh, to, to not walk a certain way that, you know, uh, an amputee might look like, or, you know, I, I, I really, really worked really hard on trying to walk as normally as I possibly could. And that was super challenging because, you know, I was using these prosthetic legs that were, uh, that were not supportive uh, of that. And, um, so, you know, the girls, you know, dealing with dating and, and, you know, how do I tell this girl, I, I think she's really pretty and, and I, I want her to like me, but, you know, will she think that I'm, I'm a weirdo or a freak, you know, um, if I tell her that I have prosthetic legs and, you know, so I, I, I hid the fact I wore long pants all the time. I wore long sleeve shirts all the time. And so I hide my scars on my arms and, you know, hide my, my pants. And, and, you know, I sat even sitting in a chair a certain way so that the, the lines of my prostheses would not um, be visible, you know, through my pants. Yeah. And was that, was that because you felt ashamed or you felt that you won't be accepted? What was the driver? I, I, you know, back then, I think, you know, as teenagers, you want to be accepted so much by your peers and in the group. And I, and I was scared that I would not be accepted um, or I would be, uh, you know, ostracized in some, some way, shape or form. Um, and another thing, I think, I think what I should say this what was the overwhelming feeling was I didn't want people's pity. I didn't want people feeling sorry for me. So I figured if they didn't know that I was an amputee, then they wouldn't feel sorry for me because I did have a lot of people that were, that cared about me. 
my support system cared. And, you know, they wanted to do certain things for me. You know, hey, let me help you with that. No, I'm okay. You know, let me get the door. No, I got the door by myself. You know, I'll be careful. I'll be careful. You know, you told me that a thousand times, mom. You know, and that's just the level of caring that just comes from your family, you know, and your support system. People just genuinely care. Um, But I was super sensitive to that and I didn't want people's pity. So I hid the fact that was an amputee and and I I just internalized, uh, you know, who I was, this, this new normal, this new Reggie. Uh, I I just kind of didn't tell people who didn't know. If you didn't know, I'm not telling you. Um, And this is powerful. Yes. Because it was, it was dark. Yeah. Yeah. And yet you touched on a point that I think for a lot of um, our listeners, and I know that I went through this myself um, in the initial stages you touched on, you didn't want anyone to pity you, right? Yep. Can you elaborate a little bit more about that? It's a fine line between caring for you and wanting to help you and how people can cross that line and actually make you feel that they pity you and that you're underprivileged now and because of your condition you, you you can't do certain things. Where was that line for you and how did you cope with it? That is a very fine line. Um, you are correct. And um, I'm, I'm reflecting now. It was so long ago. You know, growing up in the inner city, uh, well, in, any inner city in, in America, um, you have to have some, some grit. You got to have some toughness to you. And this is something that is instilled in a lot of our children at an early age because it's a defense mechanism. You know, there's, there's, there's crime everywhere. There's crime, wherever there's people, there's going to be crime, you know, in the best neighborhoods and the worst neighborhoods, there's, there's crime. But we tend to, in the city, and you can walk through New York City or Chicago, LA, Philadelphia, Boston, you know, wherever, and you'll see, if you walk downtown in the city, you'll see people who are walking around with this defense, with this guard up. And it is a defense mechanism. It's a safety factor. Um, you have to show some type of strength so people will not bother you, so people will not take advantage of you. And I think that at that age, back when I was 14, to me, people who showed me pity were acknowledging the fact that I was weak in my eyes. They were thinking that I was weak and I did not want them to think that I was weak. I wanted them to think that I was strong, that I could do certain things, that I could defend myself, that I could help myself. And they were showing me on a daily basis through their caring that I was weak. And that drove me up a wall. I could not stand that. So there was a fine line between, you know, people that were genuinely caring and people who did have pity on me. And um, in all honesty, I don't know how I I distinguished the two. Um, It was so long ago. Yeah, and you were you were very and young at the time as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, it was, I, it was really hard. It was yeah. really tough to distinguish the both. And and I'm sure that I I uh, I hurt the feelings of some people who 
you know, some family, some friends who genuinely cared and would offer the same level of care to any of their friends or children or, or anybody, you know, be careful crossing the street. You know, they would say that to anybody, but when they said it to me, it seemed like it cut like a knife because they said it uh, from a, a position of, you know, I pity you. Right. And that was the worst thing that they could ever do to me. So I, I, I developed a, a lot of self-confidence uh, or I'm, I'm saying I, I had to work a lot to learn certain skills, uh, you know, go, walking up steps, um, you know, riding a bicycle. Um, I had to do these things to prove to other people that, I, you know, I was okay. I, I could confidently accomplish these, these, these activities. And after a while, you know, I started to get back into doing these wild extreme. I was always an adventurous kid. Yeah. So prior to the accident, I was very adventurous. But then afterwards, I had to get back into my adventurous lifestyle right, to right. show people that this accident didn't really slow me down. You know? And before we jump into your next uh, uh, crazy uh, period of your life, I want I to touch on, on that subject of, um, you know, help versus pitiness and where we are on it. Because I think this is such an important point that we all go through. And I can share something that really helped me. And I think this is just because I had, you know, my amputation took place when I was older and, um, you know, life had a bit of a different um, color when Mm -hmm. I had to deal with it. And what I found very quickly was that, yes, at the beginning, people just don't know how to approach you, right? They just don't know what you need, what you don't need. They feel uncomfortable. I even have friends who disappeared from my life after my accident because they were so uncomfortable to be around me when I was completely broken and, you know, I was drugged to the, my eyeballs and I just couldn't do anything. But what I realized over time was that when we take our power back to us and we can communicate with, with the people that we care, what is it we need from them? Not trying to let them figure it out because they don't know. And of course, for us, initially, we don't know. But I think that when we, we have some guidance, when we have mentors, especially on this amputee journey that have walked the path prior, one of the advice that I usually share is that we need to actually share with our loved ones and the people that want to support us what it is we need from them. And as soon as I was open to say, listen, don't pity me. It's not that my world has ended. I'm alive. It's challenging. But all I need is support in this and that area, right? And in these areas, I need to struggle. I need to figure out on my own how to walk again and how to shower and how to drive and all of those things. It is my journey. And you bring them to be part of that instead of kind of this distinguished um, line that you draw in the sand and say, no, no, this is what I do. And this is what you do. And I have found this to shift so much around me in terms of support. And I think that's a a valid point uh, to bring. That's so very powerful that you would share that with your listeners because you're spot on. Um, Unfortunately, at an at 14 15 16 years old i didn't have the articulation skills to be able to share that with my support group so i reacted 
you know, in, you know, fits of frustration or anger um, because I couldn't communicate. I couldn't tell them what I needed, what I needed them to do and what I needed them not to do. Um, so you hit the nail on the head right there. It's, it's, yeah. it's all about that communication and uh, sharing uh, what you need them or what role they need to play in your life and what you need to experience on your own to help you with your rehabilitation. And this is the power of, you know, this podcast and programs that you do and that I do, because I think the, the, the gift that we can pay forward is really to, in hindsight, see certain things that if we were aware of, or if we had those tools that we can reach into this toolbox and use in specific areas of our life, this journey, as challenging as it is, could be done with more, I call it easiness, not in terms of it's more comfortable or your problem goes away, <laughs> far from that. It's right. more about just, okay, here's the situation, I need to deal with it, but you have some tools to work with. And, and, and this yes. is the beauty of us sharing these journeys. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's awesome. So let's jump to your adventure section of life. Once you <laughs> got things under control and you shared how much you loved motorcycles and you were an adventurer in heart. So how did that uh, come together later on? So uh, I, I graduated high school and uh, started college and went to school for radio, television, film, and just, you know, really wanted to get back into riding motorcycles like I did prior to my injury. But my parents were dead set against it. They were, no, as long as you're living under our roof, you are not going to, you know, ride motorcycles. So I figured, you know, what they don't know won't hurt them. So I had a girlfriend and uh, made a deal with her parents that, you know, I, if I got a motorcycle, I could keep it at uh, their house. And, uh, and my rent was to take care of their, their dog. And, and that's what I did for next three years was, uh, I bought a, a used motorcycle a used street bike and, um, started to ride the street bike. I mean, I, I had no skills whatsoever. It was very, very challenging riding a, a, a big, powerful Kawasaki KZ 900, uh, at the time I had, and that was a super bike of its, of its era. Um, and having prosthetic legs that, that really didn't want to stay on all that, that well. Um, and, but I, I was so determined to master riding this motorcycle. And, um, I started to ride around the city of Philadelphia. I started to hang out at some of the street racing scene and, uh, started to try my hand at street racing. And before you knew it, uh, you know, I started to make a name for myself, um, I got, had my first street race with a guy who had a motorcycle that was similar to mine and he was able-bodied, but you know, no one knew that, you know, I was disabled and um, I lined up next to this guy and we were going to drag race down the street. And, you know, lo and behold, uh, I, I turned the wind light on. I, I actually beat this guy, able-bodied guy and I uh, had no clue what I was doing, but neither did he. <laughs> But I was fortunate to win my very first street race. And that feeling, that feeling was so overwhelming until I, I told myself, I have to pursue this as some type of a career. I have to become a, a racer. Did a you modify the bike? No, the bike was completely stock. Wow. So you managed to uh, work the gears and the brakes and I everything? I managed to... to I managed to, you know, let the clutch out at such a 
a way that where I got out in front of him and I shifted gears right on time and, and, uh, and I beat him to the finish line and, <laughs> and it was just, that was it. That was my very first drag race. I won. I was like, man, I got, I got to do this. That is hardcore. No oh, doubt. Man. No doubt. You know, man, cause my for friends, my, go ahead. You know, we share the same passion for motorcycles. And um, for me, it wasn't street motorcycles. It was off-road motorcycles, right? Okay. And, uh, and after my imputation, I wanted to get back on riding motorcycles and trying to control the gear shift uh, with my right leg, which um, for me, I'm a right leg below the knee amputee, was so challenging. And my, my motorcycling was more enduro and off-road. Right, mm-hmm. so there's all this varying terrain, and you jump yep. up and down, yep. and everything yep. rattles around you. Yeah. Um, so I went through this entire process to f- modify the bike so I can actually control it safely enough, uh, so I can ride it. But for you, it sounds like you just went for it as is. <laughs> yeah, you know, I had to uh, once once again. I didn't want any special adaptive equipment. I didn't want mm. anything special on the motorcycle because of me. I actually worked on me to be able to ride the stock motorcycle and, um, and shifting gears was a huge, uh, hurdle for me to, to get over shifting gears, using the prosthetic leg, um, was very hard. Uh, but it was a testament to the power of the human spirit. You know, (laughs) human beings are incredible and we're capable of some incredible things. Uh, when faced with adversity, we will step up to the challenge. Um, so I welcome adversity. Because uh, I've taught myself in the in the past that you know I will find a way, I will overcome this challenge. So um, and that's what I did. I I rode this motorcycle, a stock motorcycle with no special adaptive equipment, and uh, yeah, and beat this guy <laughs> who was an able-bodied racer. And so, share and share with us because your story is remarkable, and the listeners here, you know, what we can cover in this podcast is like the tip of the iceberg right, of, right, of Reggie's yeah, life and, and yeah. everything else. So this is, I'll share all the resources in the uh, show notes, so you can really dive deeper, watch some videos, and really understand the achievements and the journey that Reggie uh, went through. But Reggie, I want us to touch on one thing. This is. This is something that um, I teach in my program as well, and I call it the amputee strong vehicle. This is the one thing that we find in our life that we need to pursue, we need to master. It's this big challenge that get, will get us out of bed, right? Will give us this fire inside of us to overcome the challenges we face. And a lot of the challenges, of course, for us as amputees begin on a physical plane but most of them very quickly become very mental uh, challenges that we have to break through. So can you share how you used your amputee strong vehicle uh, through this motorcycling experience to just, you know, get into this bigger life that you lead right now? I think um, for me is having to face these challenges on a daily basis for me, I, I've, I've, I follow Tony Robbins, the, uh, the motivational uh, guru and Tony calls it his personal power. Uh, personal power means the ability to act. And for me, my personal power was, uh, was a confidence that I developed over time, having to face these, these immense challenges in, in riding a motorcycle 
uh, and eventually getting into racing motorcycles, there were so many hurdles, there were so many challenges that I had to face on a daily basis. But the motivation was there because of the passion of wanting to ride, wanting to race, wanting to become a professional. So that kept me going. Even though it was very painful, even though it was very frustrating, it was very overwhelming, I kept at it because it was something that I wanted to do. So as I overcame these challenges, I developed this confidence, this personal power that I started to use exponentially in other areas of my life. So facing your fears. People say, oh, man, I, I, I have to give a speech at my job. You know, I, I hate public speaking. You know, yeah, everybody hates to speak in public. 95% of people do not want to get up in front of a crowd and give a speech. But the more you do it, the more you face your fears, you develop a confidence. You overcome that, that fear. You develop this confidence and it becomes like second nature. Oh, yeah, you got to give a speech. Yeah, not a big deal. I did it, you know, yesterday. I got another one to give tomorrow. Before you know it, this power starts to, this confidence wells up inside of you. And then whenever you face another challenge, you know, it may not be speaking, you know, this week, oh, I got to do my taxes or I have to do, and I hate doing taxes. I hate numbers. You know what? Well, I gave this speech. I hated speaking. Uh, I did it for a while. I developed the confidence. Maybe if I face my fears of numbers and doing taxes, you know, it'll get, become easier, you know, and I started to use that personal power in other areas uh, exponentially in my life. And um, so now I, I learn how to face my fears. And it all started from, you know, doing something that I really wanted to learn how to do. And that was racing a motorcycle. And it was very, very hard. But out of that facing my fears, I developed the power. And that and power I now use elsewhere. And how that important makes, that makes yeah, any sense. It, it makes so much sense because, you know, I, as I said, I call it your amputee strong vehicle. Right. I want to dive a little bit deeper here because what are your thoughts about the necessity of having your own personal vehicle? to go through this challenge that we face as amputees, be that, you know, you're early on on the journey or maybe you're a few years in, but that fuel, that motivation, that big goal that will actually push you to confront the challenges. Now, I want to make a distinction here on two levels. There is the high achiever approach, the athlete, the extreme sport. I mean, you and I both chose that path, which is very extreme, I have to admit. Um, and then there's another path that you can challenge yourself in different areas. So maybe you can touch upon that, how important it is to have something so big, this big goal, this big challenge to actually assist you to overcome what it is you're faced with. I think it complements what you said earlier about uh, being an amputee and how you wouldn't you wouldn't wish this on, you know, your, your worst enemy, but it's also a blessing. Um, we have to, we have to, I tell people all the time, it's like, everything we do is harder. Um, walking up the flight of steps, driving a car, we have to focus so much harder 
at driving a car because of our amputee status. Riding a motorcycle, I have to focus so much harder. Riding a motorcycle, making sure I, I hit the brake pedal the right way or, or put, place my legs on the foot pegs or come to a stop a certain way and put my legs down. I have to focus that much harder. But being that I have to focus and work harder doing everything, it's the skill and strength that I develop over people who don't have to work harder to do certain things. So I'm starting to get off point here. I was going somewhere with this. No, no, no. You're right on point. I think you're just, you're, you're exactly there where you say that that, Amputee strong vehicle, whatever it, may, it means to you, actually pushes you to it pushes develop those skills. And I'm, I'm so very grateful that life is not so easy for me all the time. I have that amputee vehicle, which reminds me on a daily basis that, okay, I have to give a little more effort. I have to, to exert more energy here. But the positive byproduct of that is skill. It's strength. And now I can use that skill and strength to, and it's helped me to develop my confidence to make me into the person that I am today. And I want to share that with people, with other people to, you know, we live in these, in these societies where everything is so convenient and a lot of us have gotten lazy. We've gotten fat. We've become weak. You know, we're not living to the fullest, our fullest potential because of the conveniences of our society, of the, the communities that we live in. And we need that struggle. It's part of who we are. We need to, to you know, bodybuilders, they don't build strong muscles until they lift heavy weights and there's lots of resistance. We need that as human beings on a daily basis to, uh, to help us develop confidence, to, um, to remind us of how strong we are and what's possible in our lives. Um, and I'm starting to get off track again. No, 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 you're, you're not at all. I think I th- this is the beauty of these kind of conversations because, you know, we, we touch on points that are relevant to our day-to-day life. And True. I think that True. the amputee journey is in our face all the time. You wake up yep. to it, Absolutely. you go to sleep with it. It's not Absolutely. something that, oh, it's nice to do. Maybe I want right. to become better right. at this or that. No, right. no, no, <laughs> this is a right. must. You can't, yeah. you can't make your way out of it, nope. right? That's right. Uh, I, mean, I mean, mind you, mind you, we both know uh, personal stories of people that have tried to avoid the facing up the challenge. And then you try and what happens is you retract and you kind of get into your inner world. And sometimes we even tend to try and numb the pain with substances and alcohol and different things, um, which is exactly the opposite way of what needs to be done, but because it's so challenging and painful and, and not something we really want to do, to be honest. I mean, there are days even for myself to this day that I wake up in the morning and I say, I just don't feel like doing this. I don't feel (laughs) like exercising. I don't feel like doing this thing. I mean, this is human. I mean, we are human, right? Yep. That's right. Absolutely. Welcome to the club. Yeah. Welcome. I'm I'm so very grateful that, you know, I have that because I, I sometimes think, you know, where would I be? I'm 55 years old right now, but where would I be physically? I look at a lot of my, my friends who are 50, in their 50s, and they, they haven't accomplished a fraction of some of the things that I've been able to accomplish. Now, I don't judge them because we're all on a different path. Uh, we're all on a different journey, but 
some of the things that they have failed to accomplish, they don't even want to attempt. And I at least, I have the confidence to attempt certain things, uh, to take advantage of certain opportunities that are very, very lofty, these very lofty goals that I set for myself. And I have the confidence knowing that, you know what, I'm going to do that. And even if I'm not successful, then I'm going to learn something along the way that'll help me to maybe be successful the next time I do it, or it'll help me in other areas or other opportunities. And that is a direct result of the resistance that I face as an amputee on a daily basis. Is me being able, me having to work super hard at doing just about everything in life and accomplishing it to to an extent and then gaining that strength and confidence and applying it in in other areas. This is so well said, Reggie. You know, my my hair stood on end here when you (laughs) shared this because because this is the journey, right? As human beings to begin with. And then we are all dealt with different cards and different challenges, right? I mean, we speak to our community as amputees because we can relate to that Initially, physical challenge, but but very, very quickly, that challenge becomes a complete mindset reset, right? Because you either embrace it and you say to yourself, okay, this is my vehicle now to allow me to grow. It's not going to be easy. Nobody says that. Nope, that's right. uh, You know, ride in the park and uh, beautiful sunny days all day long. But as you said, if you don't face it, and you don't exercise that resistance to help you grow, then the only other thing that can happen in that space is entropy. You will just absolutely to absolutely. the bottom of this endless rabbit hole of absolutely. lack of self-confidence and questioning yep. everything that you do and not yep. wanting even to try. Yep. And that's right. That's right. You know, yep. That's, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah. So share with us, I I don't want to take too much of your time, but share with us, how did you take this fire in you? And you said you started with motorcycles. Share with us your motorcycling career, which is unbelievable. And people will hear now what you've achieved. And then the other things that you've done uh, after that as well. So I, uh, I decided that I wanted to become a professional motorcycle racer and I did everything that uh, I had to do to learn how to uh, race motorcycles uh, every weekend instead of hanging out uh, at the party or going to whatever my other friends were doing. I was at the local drag strip honing my skills, uh, racing in sportsman uh, capacity and uh, developed a, uh, some experience, some skill and learned how to race, learned the racing game. And I decided that uh, I was going to turn professional in 1989. And I went on tour with uh, the International Drag Bike Association, which was the largest sanctioning body for motorcycle drag racing at that time. And I entered a class called Pro Competition, extremely tough class with uh, motorcycles that uh, had turbochargers, ran on uh, alcohol, nitromethane fuel, and nitrous oxide. And um, these motorcycles were super, super fast, running a quarter mile, 180 some odd miles per hour. Um, and in my first year of competition, uh, I won a championship. Uh, I, I got pro rookie of the year and I set and reset 14 world records for elapsed time and miles per hour 
And there was only a handful of people that actually knew that I was an amputee back then. Because I hid the fact that I was an amputee from the sanctioning body. I was scared that they would not allow me to race because, you know, back then, you know, we as people were not all about inclusion. And uh, as like compared to what we are today, and I was scared they would not let me race. So I figured, you know what, I'm just going to go, I'm going to ask for forgiveness instead of permission. Um, so I raced and I proved to myself that I could do it because I beat everybody. And then I disclosed to the community that I was an amputee and everybody's jaws just fell on the ground. They could not believe that they got their butts kicked by a, a person with, uh, with prosthetic legs. And I started to see people come up to me with their children and their family. And then, you know, then the media started to get hold of, of my story. And, and it was so much power in me sharing my story. And that's when I started to come out of my shell. I said, you know, this is part of a bigger plan here. Now I'm starting to realize part of my purpose. I, I, I hadn't quite realized all of it yet, but, um, at that time, I was like, you know, I need to start telling more people about my story because it's inspiring. And what it's doing is it's uplifting people. It's helping them to develop the confidence, especially our younger generation. It's helping them to believe in themselves that, you know, life is not always fair. And, but if you believe in yourself and if you work hard and you focus and you make sacrifices and you, you never lose faith, you know, you can achieve your goals you can uh, achieve greatness in whatever it is that you're trying to achieve and so that's when I started to to go out and share my story and so throughout the 90s uh, you know I would race and and uh and and talk with uh kids all over the country and uh, we continued to compete um I took some time off from drag racing in the 90s to get my pilot's license and, and and once again, didn't tell the the Federal Aviation Administration that I was an amputee. <laughs> I figured I'd I just go out there and fly and you know get my 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 license and get some ratings and and um and then you know after that and I'll tell them you know, oh yeah oh by the way you know I'm an amputee and so that worked out well flew through the 90s and then I got back into drag racing um in 1999 I think it was. Uh, and a race with the National Hot Rod Association, which uh, is the largest sanctioning body of drag racers in the world. Um, and I got into an ultra competitive class called Pro Stock. Pro Stock. And I found a sponsor, uh, a prosthetist who was willing to help me go to the next level by making me some special racing prostheses. And, you know, it's really funny. It's, when you have lemons, you, you make lemonade, right? <laughs> So I'm six foot tall, five, 11, three quarters, six foot, depending on how tall I want to be. Cause I'm a bilateral. I can be as tall, as short as I want. Um, but the height for me as a drag racer was uh, detrimental to my, my performance, my overall performance. So we came, I had, I had problems getting my feet up on the foot pegs sometimes. So um, these motorcycles, when they accelerate, they go from zero to 60 miles per hour in one second, zero to a hundred miles per hour in two seconds. And they covered a quarter mile in less than seven seconds, up to 200 miles per hour now. So it's like a land missile. It's a rocket ship on two wheels. And everything, you know, has to be just, just right or you can get seriously injured. I mean, you can get killed on these things. So for me, you know, I had to focus super hard on getting my feet up on the foot pegs. And I said, you know, maybe if I was a shorter racer, 
I had shorter legs, it would be easier for me to get my foot pegs on my feet on the foot pegs. And my process was like, well, let's just shorten you up. And uh, before you know it, lo and behold, we came up with a set of racing prostheses that had me come in at five foot five. <laughs> so uh, I was a little short guy on race kit on race day with my race legs. And after I made a run, I'd take those legs off and put my, my, my walking legs on and jack back up to six foot. People would look at me, you know, when I had my race legs on and, you know, who can just go from six foot to five, five at will. And they would look at me and say, man, something's different about him. They couldn't figure it out initially until, uh, you know, we started to tell, you know, the public and, and they made a, uh, they made a, uh, uh, a lot of noise about it in a, in a positive way. Say, Hey man, guy's got racing legs. He's got his racing legs on. He's really short today. So uh, that was kind of funny, but it, it also uh, was a testament of some of the sacrifices that you need to make in order to be successful because of me becoming a shorter racer on race day. I was able to win some of the toughest uh, races. The biggest race of my life that I won was in 2003 and National Hot Rod Association in Indianapolis, which is our Daytona 500. It's our Indy 500. Uh, and I was able to win that race at, at uh, NHRA Pro Stock Motorcycle for Indy, as well as the K&M Filters Pro Bike Clash, which is a specialty race. It's kind of like an all-star race. So I won two races in one weekend, and we did not have the fastest motorcycle. We were a middle-of-the-pack bike, but we were the most determined, the most focused um, team out there, and we overcame adversity. We actually beat faster motorcycles with a slower motorcycle, and we overcame the deficit by just getting a, a better start and you know being more efficient as we went down the racetrack. Um, so that was a, a, a really defining moment in my motorcycle career. And it's something that I'm extremely proud of that I that I share with people to this day because a lot of people have never ever won uh, Indy and we were able to win two races in one weekend uh, wow. at a, wow. a really really tough track. <laughs> yep. And and that so. is in, that is incredible. And you know there are so many different areas and uh, subjects we can dive into. <laughs> I think we'll need another <laughs> another yeah, podcast yeah. to cover all of those. But, but I think the biggest thing that comes out here, and um, I think for the uh, listeners, it would be a great uh, pause to just look at it that way. There were two big things that you just mentioned. You know, one was how powerful your support team was to allow you to win that motorcycle race races actually it's not just yeah yeah and you broke world records we're not talking about you winning the uh uh, you know uh paralympic type of sports this is complete head-to-head with able-bodied people absolutely budgets that probably were 10 times more than yours absolutely but i think it's almost a beautiful way to look at it as an analogy to our way of dealing with this journey of an amputee, the support team that we gather around us will determine how well we will recover. And I I found along my path, and just like yourself, I mentored many amputees along the way. Sometimes we're not really clear about that part of the recovery process of how powerful the support team that we need around us uh, is basically and, and how it can help us on our recovery. And you just showed us that through 
you know, trying to achieve a major external goal. But I think we can take that and unpack it and show how it's done just dealing with your day-to-day and uh, recoveries in MQT, right? Absolutely. Uh, I would never have been able to accomplish what I've accomplished without my team. Um, And that's something that I think is relevant with uh, all of business uh, today. I've gotten an opportunity to share my testimony with um, some Fortune 500 companies. And I was really, uh, initially, I was really intimidated by the the opportunity. You know, I was like, oh, man, it's a big $4 billion company and the, all these executives and, you know, all these successful people making all this money and they, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and but I was fooling myself. I said, wait a minute, you know, none of these people have been on the journey that you've been on, Reggie, you know, and share with them, you know, some of the accomplishments that you've made because they're so relevant to what they do in business. You know, it's, they have a team, their business is basically a team and they're working for, you know, they're working together to win a race or to win market share or to, you know, win at at business. And they have competitors who are all other teams that are doing the same thing. I said, so share with them some of the successes that you've learned firsthand with the importance of being a team. And I used the acronym uh, TEAM, T-E-A-M, together each achieves more. And that's something that I, 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 I tried to focus on on a daily basis with my team, that each and every one of us was an integral part of the process from the, the business manager, from the clutch mechanic to my crew chief, to myself, each and every one of us had a very important part to play in the overall success of the team. And we respected each other and we worked together and we were very successful. And that's something that I share with, uh, you know, these businesses and they do the same exact thing. Yes. Just, they do. Uh, <laughs> yes. Just, you know, they're, they're in business, you know, selling product and you know, winning, trying to win market share. I'm just trying to win races. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's uh, after I looked at it from that perspective, you know, I was no longer intimidated and, and had an opportunity to share some really, really uh, important, relevant information. Yeah. Because after your racing, um, period in your time you continued on right you took more challenges and then yeah public speaking in brief you know I did some public speaking um I got a chance to and this is when and you know and let me let me touch on this Arez I until I I didn't really come out of my shell until I started to spend more time around other amputees you know I was racing against able-bodied people I was hanging out with able-bodied people you know, it was all about, you know, you know, Reggie, the amputee, uh, racing against, you know, able-bodied people. But when I started to spend more time with my amputee community and I started to see other people who were on similar journeys, um, you know, within their own right, they you know, overcame adversity. They, they developed an inner confidence. Um, they came out of their shell. We shared stories. And what really, really helped me was to see other amputees that were walking around in shorts and they were proudly showing off, you know, their prostheses. They were proudly showing their scars 
there, the story of a life lived, you know, that's where I started to, to feel and, and, and to accept my new normal. And that's when I really started to come out of my shell. And, you know, I talk to people all the time, like people ask me, what's, you know, other amputees will ask me, you know, I, I really like to date, you know, but I'm, I'm scared. And I said, dude, nothing is more attractive to a woman than confidence. Mm-hmm. So if you can show her who you are and be proud of who you are, and what you are, I said, that is the most uh, attractive quality of a human being is confidence. And, you know, I've held the hand of many an amputee and walked them through the dating process. And I tell you, when I walk into a room or I walk into an airport or I walk onto an airplane or whatever, and I'm wearing prosthetic, my, my prosthetic legs boldly and proudly, people treat me differently. People are just so much nicer to me compared to where I wear long pants. When I wear long pants, they're like, ah, get out of my way or whatever, you know, and, and they're not receptive. But when I walk, and it's not a pity thing, it's more they're responding to the, the, the confidence that I exude and it's attractive, yeah. not only from, you know, the opposite sex for, you know, from a, a romantic dynamic, but it's attractive just from a humanitarian dynamic people you know, yeah. want to know who you are and wow look at mm-hmm. look at how proud this dude is you know and that's something that is really really important for me to share with uh, the amputee community yeah and it's so powerful because you remember when you mentioned earlier how when you were younger you tried to hide this and yes nobody yes, should I, know and you thought I this will actually disempower yes. you right yes and yet when we embrace who we are and the amputation you know i always say this You're not an amputee. You're not a disabled person. You're the same person you were. Yes. You're just missing, you know, a limb or, or a few That's other right. parts of your body. Yep. And that identity part, when we take upon ourselves the need to define by using words who we are, I'm an amputee, I'm disabled, I'm a below knee, above knee, hand, arm, whatever, we do such disservice to yes. ourselves And to humanity, right? Because we become so small. We are, oh, I'm now this. No, you're not. And by you sharing your story today here and, and really being so open about the entire ups and downs of this, because we haven't touched on that. And I think we'll probably have to do another uh, yeah. podcast on it. But what people need to understand is, and maybe we can kind of um, cruise towards the end of the podcast with it, is that. It's not that at one point life become easy and everything is uh, rosy and you just manage your day day to day. There's always these ups and downs. Maybe you can touch a little bit about that on you know you are now an amputee of how many years? 41 years coming up. 41 years. So maybe you can share a little bit about you know the challenges, the difficulties that you still experience on a daily basis, so people see that this is this is real, this is not something that at one point just oh, nothing happens anymore and oh yeah, you know it's it's kind of like uh people they they look at these uh these celebrities or you know t v stars movie stars, whatever, and they think that they live these these privileged you know always happy lives. You know they're real people too. They have problems. you know they have issues that they deal with. Um, life is not always fair. Um, 
being an amputee, everything, you know, is different. There are some good times and there's some bad times. Just like you said, sometimes, you know, some days I wake up and I, man, I, I really don't feel like putting my legs on today, but there's a consequence to that. If I don't put my legs on and I'm not going to be able to be mobile, I'm not going to be able to, you know, uh, go to the store or, you know, get some food or whatever. Um, I guess um, lost my chain of thought there for, for one second. Cause I was thinking I, I was trying to go somewhere with the story. So bear with me for one second. Sure. Sure. There's, there's, there's times where, you know, life gets hard, but I always remind myself um, in the hard times, there, there is no failure. You know, a lot of people, they, they live their lives where, you know, they gotta, they gotta win all the time or they, they gotta, they have to be first all the time. Uh, I have some friends that are like that. It's, it's really interesting to see how they always, they're so super competitive and they want to be first all the time. And for me, you know, it's great to, to be first, but there's such a lesson, such an important, powerful lesson that's learned in being last or, or in, in, in coming in second, or I, I hate to use the word failure because there is no failure to me, but we'll use the, the word failure because people can, can understand that. When you fail or when you fall or when you trip, there's a lesson to be learned if you want to learn the lesson. To me, there is no failure because I always win because I learn. I learn now what not to do the next time. So I don't fail. I actually win. So that I, I learn more from my quote unquote failures than I do from my successes. So I always get an education on what not to do the next time when I quote unquote fail. So, and life is the same way. If you look at it that way, we, you know, human beings, I'll say amputees, but I'll say human beings in general, life is not always going to go your way. You're always going to face some challenges, some adversity, um, you know, and, and it could be a prolonged challenge, a prolonged bout of adversity. But just know that learn from that situation. I call it experience is what it is. You know, it's, it's experience. Um, and, and you will never fail in life. As long as you learn from those dark times, as long as you learn from your challenges, your failures, you, 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 you actually win. That is extremely, extremely powerful, Reggie. And I think on, on this note, we will um, we'll end the podcast. And we definitely, uh, I'm sure our listeners will also vote for it. <laughs> we'll, have to do, we'll have to do another one uh, where, awesome. we, where we dive deeper into some other subjects. But first of all, to. I really want to thank you for coming on board here and sharing your story. And really, this, this work and providing these platforms for our amputee community to understand and, and develop a little bit more of a broader perspective about what this journey is about, because it's not just about dealing with the physical challenge or how to readjust and get back to a normal life. I think there's a beautiful golden opportunity that we receive with these devastating events to transform our lives. I know it's difficult to see when you're in it, but when we hear stories like yourself and others that have 
come on the other side, and this is what I always say, the other side could be tremendous, but you have to know that it's there first, and then sure. you have to chart a path to get there. Sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, that has been a remarkable podcast. I definitely enjoyed every single second of it. <laughs> Thank you very much for, uh, you know, for wanting me to uh, share my, th- my story. Um, I tell people all the time that it's just tremendously therapeutic to be able to purge, to be able to share, you know, your, your life journey with others. Um, and this actually helped me, uh, more than I'm sure it'll help your, your listeners. Uh, so thank you so very much for this opportunity, man. Well, thank you. It, it, just as you said, when we started, it always, it goes both ways, right? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's the beauty. That is awesome. Well, thank you very much for that, Ricky. You are very welcome. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Reggie is just full of insight and experience, and he has taken all of that and encapsulated in a way that we can relate to and understand. So I hope you got a lot of new perspectives and ideas and as always if you want to reach out to Reggie all of his contact information is uh, in the show notes and to support this podcast guys this is important really this is how these podcasts reach more and more of our community is by word of mouth and by reviews so please subscribe to the podcast and go on iTunes give us a review let us know what you think and we will see you on the next episode